Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. This episode is brought to you by partnership with Missio Alliance and Kairos Partnerships. It's good to see you today, JR. You as well, Doug. You as well. We're super excited about this second part with Alan Fadling. We really yes. enjoyed the first uh, section of our conversation with him, yes. uh, but we're looking forward to this second one. Yeah, we we just know that you guys are going to have a ton of um, insight, uh, a ton of opportunities just to to lean in and to learn some great things. So we'll stop talking and let you all enjoy the conversation with our friend Alan Fadling. The, you know, as you're talking here the last few minutes, Alan, one of the things that I'm reminded of, and it may be that people fully get what you're saying and say, I'm all in, I want to learn how to do it. And others are saying, yeah, that's good, but I'm still going to run after some of the things that I'm told in my church culture I should do. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to say Jesus is terrible, but these other things are really important in the system. And it makes me think of the old, in the Old Testament, it's not often that they fully rejected Yahweh, it's that they believed Yahweh and all these other gods and served yeah. idols in addition to the one true God and where God got so angry and jealous. And in many ways, I, I, and feel free to push back if you disagree here uh, with me on this, but it's not that any of us are saying, no, I'm not going to follow God and what he says. It's that we say, I'll follow God and what he says, but I'll serve different idols as well, <laughs> different mm. gods and goddesses. But instead of Baal and Asherah and Artemis, they're the idols and pagan uh, gods of pragmatism and efficiency and productivity. And so say, I want to serve God, but I also need to be efficient. I also serve God, but I need to build my platform. I also serve God, but I, I, I need to make sure I'm pragmatic. I mean, let's be realistic here, Alan, right? We got to be practical. And so how do we, how would you encourage people to think differently about maybe some of those idols in the North American church of pragmatism, efficiency, celebrity, productivity, because those clash with a lot of what you're saying with unhurried living. Yeah, no, that's that's very well said. The, one of the metaphors I've often used, um, you use the metaphor of, uh, of idolatry, and it's a fair metaphor. I like the image of John 15 that Jesus says, I'm the true vine, the true vine. The problem is we get into the habit of abiding in false vines. And what no, happens without that's our realizing good. it? Yeah. The true vine gives us life. The false vine sucks the life out of us. And we are too easily impressed with the outcomes of our own pragmatism and efficiency. We've got these little horse-like blinders on, and we look at certain outcomes and we say to ourselves, look at what I did. And then we're pretty sure God's impressed too. <laughs> I later in that John 15 passage is the line, I you didn't choose me, I chose you, and I appointed you to go bear fruit. And then he qualifies it, fruit that will last. I don't think you can measure fruit that will last in quarterly uh, you know, uh measurements of oh, a little more, a little more, a little more, a little more. I just think you you have you need a few years. You maybe you need five, maybe you need 10 or 20 years. Start thinking about how God does things with his people. God gives Abraham a promise. He's going to have a son. He's going to get blessed so that he can be a blessing. And then nothing. In terms of the promise being realized, 15 years later, he's still waiting. And so he decides to help God out. Very, very pragmatic guy. Well, now we have the story of Hagar and Ishmael. It takes another 10 years before the promise is visibly 
realized. You're Joseph. You know, you're a dreamer. God's given you a vision. Now what's next? Not the realization of the vision. That's for sure. That this is actually quite a biblical pattern. Often God takes a long time to make us the people who could do the work he wants to do. Saul gets converted radically. And somewhere along the way, he's out there in the deserts of Arabia for an awfully long time. This is not the path of ministry formation we expect, but it's not an unusual pattern when you look at the lives of of men and women of significance in the scriptural story and in the historical story of the church. So I just think we have to widen our vision a little bit about how it is that God makes us the kind of people who would bear the kind of fruit that we'll be proud of and that will honor the Father a hundred years from now or a thousand years from now, instead of three months later, we measure this and this and this, and we're all impressed with it because we more butts are in seats or we have a bigger building or we have more money coming in. I'm always glad for when that happens, but I don't think Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are sitting up there in the kingdom you know, realm just, oh, did you see how many more people were sitting <laughs> in that building? Oh, wow. You know, I just don't think that's what they're celebrating. Um, so that, that's what I would say. Um, you know, there are a lot of things about how I measure the success of my life and my ministry that died that's, and really needed to. And, mm. and, and the beautiful thing was there was something that rose without, without as much me in it and um, a little more trusting, a little more willingness to a surrender or abandon myself to what God was inviting me to. And it's made a great deal of difference. That's so, that's so helpful, Alan. I feel like in in a lot of ways you're really getting at some of the misconceptions of spiritual leadership and ministry, and even thinking just super practically, like what would you say are um, some super practical steps of kind of blowing up that or or allowing that vision of three months to die, and like what are some really practical ways we can start thinking long view instead of short view, because my sense is it's probably an entire paradigm shift, but are there practices that you're finding that just really help us to think outside of three months next week and further and further out? Yeah. So um, I think one of the practices early on that has continued now for 30 years to be really critical for me, it's nothing new. It's been recommended by many. Dallas Willard often said it was sort of the queen of the disciplines, and that is the practice of solitude, silence, and prayer. I don't think this is sort of importing some Catholic process into our Protestant ethos. I think it's following Jesus who often withdraws to the lonely place to pray. I think this is part of the way of Jesus. Now, it's not an American way, but that's why it's so good. Um, Jesus withdraws to lonely places to pray. I imagine it as the place where he remembers who he is and he remembers what he's called to. And it helps him practice the presence of his father in the midst of each moment so that he knows it's time to stop for the guy on the side of the road, or he knows it's time to make this journey to that place that, you know, that language in the gospel of John about, I only do what I see the father doing. I only, my words are not my own. I only say what I hear the father speaking. How does he know what the father's saying? How does he know what the father's doing? And I think it's because Jesus, yes, fully God, but also yes, fully human, was learning how to live in full dependence on the Spirit of God. He was learning how to live the kind of life we were always meant to live. And, and so 
that has been critical because in solitude, the me that has to be impressive dies. In solitude, the me that's looking to everybody else for my identity dies. In solitude, the me that has to, who is what he does, dies. Solitude is not going off to a beautiful little oasis like Caribbean beach and sipping fruity drinks, you know. Uh, it is robust spiritual training. It, it Over time, it it causes us to learn that the me that has to be impressive and successful and spectacular, that may not be the best me to be doing the work of God. That may be getting in my way of actually leaning into the work that God wants me to do with God. So that's been really a critical one, the practice of solitude. Coupled with it would be other practices like uh, Sabbath. It's a whole collection of disciplines that Dallas Willard would have called the disciplines of abstinence. That's hard for us in leadership. The, the don't do something practices. Yeah, we Those, talk often about a to-don't list. <laughs> yeah. That Jesus sometimes invites us to do less on the to-do list and more on the to-don't list. <laughs> exactly. And so the thing I think maybe now I can be a little bit maybe kingdom pragmatic when I'm building in the rhythm of following Jesus to the lonely place, you know what I discovered? I'm more creative. Mm. I have, I'm a non-anxious presence. Everyone's talking about that. How do you do that? How do you become that? It's nice to read a book about it and recommend <laughs> it. And then, okay, well, I'm going to be a non-anxious presence. What you watch me, I'm going to be really, really, really non-anxious. I'm going to, I'm going to be the most non-anxious presence you ever saw. <laughs> you can't make yourself a non-anxious presence. You can become a non-anxious presence when you realize you live in the presence of a prince of peace. That's good. So disciplines that help you realize that the main thing about your work is not someday. The main thing about your work is right now, where God is, where you are, or maybe the person that you're interacting with is there with you, or the task you're working on is right there. It's, it's learning to, you know, it's practice the presence of God in the moment. That's where you're becoming who God's making you. And that's where you're working with what God's doing in that moment. So that's been important. I guess maybe the other thing I'd say is learning how to engage the scriptures, uh, not as a professional. I think a lot of us get into the habit of I'm studying the scriptures. I'm, I'm getting a message for the people. And so I sort of take something from the Bible and I whip it around and I hand it to the people and it doesn't go through me. So Learning to engage the scriptures first, as I did way back 40-some years ago when I became a follower of Jesus, reading the scriptures is, is a place God's speaking to me, and coming to discover that what God's speaking to me and I'm learning to respond to, that might actually be the essence of what the people of God need to hear. They need to hear wisdom, not just biblical information. And wisdom is truth lived and truth tested and, and, that, and then truth recommended. And that's, that's what I think our culture is so desperately needing. We are so needing wise men and women. And that's not because we've read 300 books. It's because we've lived into the truth God is teaching us. So I think that's been a, an important long-term practice for me as well.
talked about Unhurried and the theme of your your first two books. I want to just briefly allow you some space to talk about uh, the book that you and your wife recently wrote of What Is Your Soul Love? And I was so grateful to have the opportunity to not only read an advanced copy, but write an endorsement of it. And one of the things that I said is this is not just a book. It is a very practical resource of living the with God life. And Mm. as someone who loves questions, I mean, you had me at the title. And then when I saw the table of contents where you're just unpacking these eight questions, which is just wonderful. And then at the end, giving all sorts of creative practices and a group guide, it really is so practical, which is Mm. why it was easy uh, for me to recommend that. Um, And uh, we'll we'll list those eight questions in our show notes because I mean, they're so good. And and we want to point people, of course, to, to purchasing the book as well. But um, how did you and your wife unpack this together in terms of landing on those questions? And mm-hmm. um, why are questions so important even as you think about writing this book? I mean, most people wouldn't put questions in the title uh, of yeah. a book necessarily. Why were questions a part of opening up that space for you to unpack what our soul actually loves? Yeah. So um, it's really fun. The, the genesis of the title and the genesis, the table of contents really comes from a season in my wife's life where she basically asked this question in prayer, God, um, how, how have I ended up where I am? How, uh, how have I come to grow in some of the ways I grew? Cause it was kind of a moment of gratitude. Like, wow, what a, what a great thing it is to find ourselves where we are to, to find that our roots have sunk deep and that we're learning to learning that we're beloved and we're, learning to serve in the kingdom. So it was a, it was a kind of discernment like question. And the God's answer to her question was essentially questions. Mm. And so I think seven of the eight questions that form the framework of the book came in that little exercise. We added one more just in the writing process. There were a whole series of thoughts that sort of came that became an eighth question, but the, 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 the purpose of the book was to write a book about this transform, transforming journey into which God invites us. Be transformed. So at first, it was a book about change. And then as it took shape, um, I really think there were two primary audiences. One was I thought of probably very much the listeners in your podcast audience. I wanted Both of us wanted it to be a book that might help us get a vision for where the frontiers of God's transforming work in our own lives might be. Because those eight questions, though they aren't the eight questions, the only eight questions, there are no other questions but the eight questions. Instead, they just happen to be eight questions we found ourselves returning to often over the course of our adult formation in Christ, our our growing trust in God. So that was one audience we hoped to serve. And then the other audience was, I would say, a a large number of North American Christians whose vision of the faith is mostly believe the right things and do the right things, or, or or at least look like you're doing the right things. Whereas Jesus' message is, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. And and by that repent, there's a sense of being changed, turning uh, away from and turning toward. And you know, a lot of times we turn that into an evangelistic message, and it's rightly so that, but it's also a formational message. It's good news. Man, what good news it is that I could change. What amazingly good news. So our hope was to write a book that would be a kind of on-ramp 
or maybe some who have described themselves as followers of Jesus and have done so for quite a while, an on-ramp into, you know, there is an adventure into which God's inviting you. And your own life being transformed into the image of Jesus would be such a robust witness to a world that desperately needs to see who Jesus is, that that's really the essence of the good news. So that was the, uh, that was the idea. And the thing with questions is, early in my life as a person of faith, early in my ministry, I thought questions were mostly meant to be answered, and then the answer was to be filed away, and I move on. So, but these questions uh, in the book, these are not questions you just answer and move on. These are questions you live with. Mm. And uh, I think the further we go in the faith, the more we realize our knowledge of God is always smaller than the reality of God. That's just a reality. That, that's no big surprise, but it sometimes makes us feel uncomfortable uh, to think something like that. And so living with questions in the presence of God is a kind of epistemological humility. Mm. It's just a willingness to acknowledge I have confidence in my knowledge, but my knowledge is not inerrant. Uh, and questions enable me to acknowledge the honesty of that. And, and it's, a, it's a good thing for me to be able to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful. Um, one of my, my co-pastor, Ben, uh, he, he, he said this, and I can't remember who he quoted, but he said, you know, God is, is infinitely knowable. Mm. And and I love that statement, and and that's exactly what you're saying. It's it's this idea of yeah, we you know, we get to know who God is, but He is continually revealing more and more and more of Himself. And I just think that's, I think that's the most beautiful gift that we have. And the idea of living with questions, I I think I'm still I'm fortunate hanging out with Briggs for all these years. I've <laughs> like I drink from the question fire hose a lot, and I don't think. I, I sense a lot of people still think of questions in terms of just let's answer this and move on and let's file it away. But like learning to living with questions feels like a dance in and of itself. And so just as we're thinking about kind of bringing this amazing conversation to close, like how would you encourage pastors to move from answering questions to living with questions? So I think one of the things I would say is personally, when I live with questions, it puts me in a place of dependence. And I need that. I need to acknowledge that there is only one omniscient, and it's not me. The other thing is that in pastoral ministry, one of the things I want to help people, the people I serve, I want to help them learn how to lean into who God is. And it's really uh, easy as a pastor or a Christian leader to make yourself the one who's indispensable. Um, it's, it's very, uh, you know, identity affirming to be so needy, needed, but it's actually not good for your soul, and it's not good for the people we serve. What, what I've always hoped I would be is a pointer of the way. I'm pointing people to Jesus. I'm not pointing them to me and my amazing sermons or my amazing counsel or my amazing teaching. What I hope I am is I'm pointing people to the one they're actually seeking. Questions help that happen. And I'm not talking about a kind of living with questions where I have no answers. Um, I don't want to hand a brand new follower of Jesus a big old long list of questions as though there's nothing you can stand on, that there aren't any foundations. Of course, there are some things I can count on. I, I just love things like the creed. You know, the ancient creeds give me some really simple, reliable uh, truths that are foundation-like and 
you can count on them and uh, don't fully define the whole universe of reality there. You wouldn't live on a foundation. You need a house too. Mm. And so um, I, I think seeing yourself as a pointer of the way and questions, questions that you live with help you remember that for yourself and help you point people to uh, seeking Jesus so that when the day perhaps comes that they're not in your church anymore, they've learned a way of life they can keep living. Uh, it's a kind of discipleship, I think. And uh, that's been really good for our souls. And it's been really good for the people we get to serve along the way. Yeah. So last, last question. And I wanted to this is kind of a baited question, but you know, your book, your book title has this beautiful question. What does your soul love? And so I wanted to ask you, what does your soul love, Alan? <laughs> well, um, so I could give you the, uh, accurate Sunday school <laughs> answer. Um, Jesus, you know, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think part of the nature of that question has actually been discovering that's that's the reality. Mm. Not as a initial Sunday school right answer that you're supposed to give to the question, but maybe something that's a little bit more like John the Apostle writing 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which in some ways are the absolutely most simple documents in the canon, but are also the fruit of decades of walking with Jesus. I think that's what I've little been little by little been learning that, you know, in the spirit of David in his Psalm 27, one thing I ask of the Lord, and this is what I've found I'm seeking. I, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. And that turns out to be what my soul loves. And I live in a world that tells me my soul loves about 816 things. Hmm. But little by little, I'm learning, no, uh, what my soul loves turns out to be a who. And um, that's been, in some ways, the, the hub of my journey uh, over time. So, again, I, it may end up sounding really super Sunday schoolish, you know, but that's what I'm discovering. At my best, that's what my soul loves. Mm-hmm. Wow. Alan, thank you so much. And um, I just want to ask you one last thing, and then we're going to close this, but could you uh, just bless pastors and leaders who are listening today? Mm. Well, maybe I could just pray. Mm-hmm. And Lord Jesus, what an honor it is that you invited us to come to you, that your first invitation was an invitation to fellowship, to relationship, to abiding, to use that old English language from the John 15 text. That was your first invitation. You just wanted that group of 12 to be with you. And then you, uh, implicit in your invitation was that you were inviting them to come follow you and to learn how to do what you were doing. We would like to learn how to respond to you in that invitation to, 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 uh, to be the people who come to you always first First, we come in relationship, and then we come in collaboration, that we're with you in the yoke of ministry. But first, we're there in relationship, and then we're there in collaboration. 
may you guide each one of us, each one listening to this podcast episode. May they sense what it's looking like in this season of their life with the successes, with the struggles, with the worries, with the fears, with the dreams, with the visions, that all of those places could be places of communion with you and then could bear fruit in collaboration with you, that working with God uh, dynamic. For all of this, I pray, grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. so glad that we made the executive decision to make this into a two-part series. Absolutely. We could have made it a three-part series <laughs> with how good it is. And uh, so grateful for Alan's wisdom and Alan and Jem's book um, that they've written is just an unbelievable resource. But I know you and I were just talking recently that the John 15 passage really resonated with us. Oh, yeah. What from what Alan said about John 15 and the true vine, what, what stuck out to you? Well, I, there's something really profound about the idea of true vine, the true vine giving life and the false vine sucking life. Uh, yeah, we focus on the vine, but not on the qualifier, true vine. Correct. I had never seen that. Me neither. That was so I good. I was like, what has happened? But that, I think what what's so interesting is even realizing that as, um, I mean, John 15 is really important to the Renew community. Um, yeah. Uh, Men and women who go through our discipleship, uh, like life discipleship stuff, memorize that. And so we we have quite a few dozen people in our church that have memorized this passage. And so it just is deeply significant. And the process of memorizing John 15, 1 through 8 is, it's really long and it's arduous. And I remember one of the first times I I was with a cohort of guys working through it, um, it took someone, they, they didn't have it memorized the first time and people jumped in to help because it was that important. Yeah. And I just appreciated how that has become such a, such a, such like a life verse, a life passage. And it's just gotten, it's like, it's been steeped into our culture as a community. Um, this idea of the vine and, and John 15 and what he's playing, playing the way that he's working this metaphor into our spiritual lives. But for me, I think even the way that that qualifies, I feel like is it's putting new questions in me um, as I think about the vines, like, oh, is that vine sucking life or is that giving life? And I've never thought about it from that perspective. How about you? Well, I mean, this metaphor is just so helpful. You know, the, the idea of you know, I'm the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. I think we're shocked when there's some sort of cutting we experience in our lives. And we're like, but Jesus says very clearly, if you aren't producing fruit, fruit, I will cut you off. I will cut off that branch. If you are producing fruit, I'm going to prune you, which involves cutting so that you'll be more fruitful. And then we're shocked when there's cutting that's involved in our lives and we realize, oh, Jesus promised us this. Why am I so surprised? I wonder if Jesus is surprised that we're surprised when we experience some trimming, pruning, cutting in our own lives. He's yeah. like, I, I told you all. I told you this was going to happen. I told you this would yeah. happen, right? Yeah. And that phrase, like, apart from me, you can do nothing. I think we think, apart from me, you might struggle a little bit. Apart from me, you won't be able to do everything you know you want to do. Apart from me, you won't have your best life now, <laughs> you know? No, no, no. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Like, do I believe that N-word? Nothing? Do I really believe that apart from Jesus, I can do absolutely zilch? 
that's that's a faith builder right there. That is a faith that, builder. That uh, confronts my own desires and temptations for self-sufficiency or to treat Jesus as some sort of hood ornament on the fancy car of ministry. Mm. And that's not at all what he's calling us into. And so, yeah, that old kind of word abide that he referenced there at the end with the prayer, you know, abiding and remaining the vine is both active and passive, right? Like there's intention on my part, but it's also receiving more than it is. So it's almost like a clinging to and letting him do the work. And so it's sort of active and passive, which is kind of um, hard for us sometimes to be in both of those spaces. Um, but I think that's back to the pitcher and cup idea that my job, and he said this uh, last week, my job uh, as a leader and as a pastor is to make sure my cup is turned upright. That's an active role that I play. But once it's upright, then it's a passive receiving. The Lord is acting and pouring into me. And then an overflow is kind of a passive act. like. It's what happens when you have too much. <laughs> and I just want to live out of that overflow, and I want to live out of that true vine. And he talked about the fruit that will last, and I love that line. I'm not going to get it exactly how he said it, but it, fruit that lasts can't be measured by quarterly reports. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, how many people were there on Sunday? Oh, we're down you know, 2% compared to two months ago. It's like, when are we saying, oh, but there's more fruit now that this decade than there was last decade, decade in our ministry or our church? We just don't have those mm. conversations. Yeah. Wow. There's like four pictures running through my brain right now, but I'm going to focus on two of them. The first one is when you show up at a restaurant and you sit down and there's the saucer with the coffee cup turned upside down. Oh, dude. And so ministry, you and know. And what do we say yeah. when we turn it over? Right. Please fill Please me. Please fill me. Ooh. It's like when we flip that dude. mug over, it's an invitation to fill. Dude. And that upright mug. So anyway, so there's that. And then I heard this the other day, and Love I cannot it. remember where I heard this, um, but somebody made a comment that, you know, when you set out to start a vineyard, it takes seven years for mm. the for the vines to grow healthy enough in order to, to produce grapes yeah. to use for wine. Yes. And so even that idea of that that gestation period or that solitude or that those spaces and and realizing the pruning process is uh, is is such an important it's such an important thing. And even to realize that that, that is such a loving thing, right? If I just let my 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 vineyard just go wild. I'm actually not being a good, like, I'm not caring well for it. But in order to see something produce and to be whole and healthy, you cut stuff, you have to cut the dead stuff off. And I think a lot of that is like, maybe that's the big piece for me in terms of the false vine. And to recognize when God's cutting something, it's probably a false vine. It's sucking life instead of giving life. Yeah, it's like severe mercy, you know? Yes. Even though it hurts. Right. And that whole idea, and I'm I'm not a gardener, but I do love flowers and we have rose bushes in our yard. And so the idea that like, yeah, I trim away the roses, not that are dead, but that are good, but not the best ones is mm -hmm. weird to me. It is strange. Because by, by cutting those off, I'm redirecting the nutrients towards the best roses so that they're even better, which is just... You know, that's just uh, hard for us as Americans. We think as many as possible and let's be good and pump them out. And, <laughs> but to think, man, cutting off the good to send the nutrients to the best, to the source, mm. is really what, oh man, that's just so much there. So we're so grateful for Alan. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some resources that you'd recommend, yeah. Doug? Definitely his book, 
What does your soul love? Um, him and his wife wrote it. I think it is worth the investment. Um, you know, it, it's fantastic. So get that. Uh, also, I think it would be really good just to remind you of his website, theunhurriedlife.com. And then uh, just another- Unhurriedliving. Oh, sorry, unhurriedliving. I've done this twice. <laughs> unhurriedliving.com. Please check that out. Um, just a lot of great resources there. And then I think another great resource is John 15, one through eight. And I would love to challenge you all to begin to memorize yeah. that and to just steep your lives into that beautiful space. What are some questions you'd want to leave us with, JR? I, th I think very easily is just to take the questions that Alan and Jim Fadling used in their book, What Does Your Soul Love? Um, and they'll unpack this more, but um, I, we just want to offer those questions uh, for you to sit with. We'll also put those in the show notes. Um, and so let me just read those. So the first one is desire. What do you really want? Number two, resistance. What is getting in your way? Three, vulnerability. What are you hiding? Four, truth. What is most real to you? Five, pain. How are you suffering? Six, fear. What are you afraid of? Seven, control. What are you clinging to? And eight, joy. What does your soul love? I mean, think about those areas, Doug. Desire, resistance, vulnerability, truth, pain, fear, control, joy. Mm. Those aren't light and fluffy, but man, those are incisive, significant, meaningful questions that we want to encourage our listeners to sit with and sit with it with the book, but also sit with it just in your own yes. life. Ruminate over those. Um, those can be just incredible tools. They sound so, like questions to live with. Yeah. Yeah. So send us out here, Doug. Yeah. So brothers and sisters, we're so grateful for just the work that God is doing in your life. And I just want to bless you today. As you go, may you recognize that God invites you into these beautiful spaces of growth, that he is the true vine who gives life to everything that you are. And out of that, that you would recognize that he is giving you life for everything that you do. May you not get those confused, that he gives you life to do, but that he gives you life because he loves you and that we live outside of that. So may we make sure that our, our cups are turned over and that we are waiting for the good Father to pour into our lives. 